Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I am Leon Getler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 26 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, 31st of July. First, I'll be talking to Accommodation Association CEO Dean Long. The Accommodation Association is a peak industry body and represents close to 3,500 hotels and nearly 58,000 employees across Australia. They've been doing it hard during COVID-19. And I'll be talking to RMIT Professor Sinclair Davidson about Treasurer Josh Frydenberg's latest budget outlook. But now, let's talk to Dean Long. Uh, you guys represent the hotels and motels and accommodation providers. And they're right in the thick of it at the moment with uh, COVID-19. Uh, tell us about it. Look, we were an industry that's been absolutely devastated. Uh, looking at revenue decreases of between 75 and 85% across the city and regional areas. In a matter of four weeks, we went from occupancies of low to mid 90% to sub 10%. Uh, And there was a period there where the only guests in Australia were those that were doing the self-isolation programs. So it was an absolutely devastating period. But we are starting to see some green shoots on weekends, but it was a devastating start to the year. You're also now doing self-isolation for incoming travellers and accommodating frontline workers as well. Yeah, and that's, there's some really exciting work that's going on in that in that space. One of the things that as an industry we're really proud of, that when we were asked to step up uh, to help healthcare workers 
stay safe, to support their families, and also to keep the community safe at the request of government, we were able to provide facilities that enabled that protection to take place. It's been a little bit disappointing to see some of the lapses in the government processes in Victoria, but in every other jurisdiction, it's worked fantastically well and we've played our role and really done our national duty through this process. Uh, there were some issues with the security guards, weren't there, Victoria? Yeah, it was, it was quite an interesting approach. Uh, a lot of other states and territories utilised the you know, Defence Force personnel and uh, really ramped up the local police presence in each of those. Victoria chose a slightly different tact uh, and looked at employing private security guards, and they did, and it definitely appears that uh, that has been a source of uh, the local outbreak in Victoria. But we are in the middle of a judicial inquiry in that, so we've got to see where that goes. But we do look forward to seeing what that finds. Uh, but I think the really critical element on this is uh, the hotels weren't running the programs. This was a government-led program. It was a government-led process. Uh, so it's uh, that's their processes they've got to review and manage. How was the hotel handled? Look, the majority of them effectively turned their hotels over to uh, the Victorian government. And, and if governments across Australia, uh, so it wasn't just in Victoria. And they went, right, this is the facilities that you need. These are the number of rooms that you need. Right, we'll be there to provide support services to those that are providing the frontline services. So we would be there to ensure that the staff were adequately trained on fire protection procedures, the evacuation procedures of the hotel, if that's what happened. Uh, we were there to support the check-in processes of those people that were part of the self-isolation process. But if it was delivering food, if it was servicing those guests, it was all done by external contractors managed by those state and territory governments. Well, that would say there's a critical importance of the government and the sector have to really work closely closely together. It says that, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think what it showed is in, you know, in seven of the eight jurisdictions, it worked really well. Uh, and I think for the over, overwhelming majority of cases in Victoria, it also worked very, very well. Uh, but there were a couple of instances where, unfortunately, those that were employed by the government uh, in that jurisdiction, uh, they didn't follow the government's own processes or systems. All those systems and processes weren't in place by that government. So the judicial inquiry will show some additional information on that, and we look forward to engaging with that as it, as it unfolds. Well, this is all very unprecedented. We've never been through this. And so, while uh, people can be critical of the way different governments have handled it, they're making it up as they're going along because it's all very new for them, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and I think that's, that nobody uh, you know, involved with the development of the self-isolation program uh, with hotels uh, went in with the wrong intention. This, this isn't a witch hunt. It's just we need to get to the bottom of, of what happened. So if this does happen again, we know exactly what went wrong so we don't make the same mistakes again. And that goes on both sides of the equation. Like the hotel industry will probably be far more stringent in what they request from government in their processes and systems. So they're comfortable that they've got the right protections in place. And I think government will be very, very, very clear and very, very certain to not make the same mistakes that have been made to date. So it's definitely a partnership uh, in that and, and everybody will get better through this process. Uh, one of the big issues, of course, is in the healthcare sectors, a lot of healthcare, healthcare workers are now very vulnerable and have actually contracted the virus. Uh, I would imagine people in the hotel industry would be just as vulnerable to this as well and they would be risking their health to do this work. Would you agree with that? Probably not to the same extent as those that are operating on the front line uh, in, a, in a health 
uh, environment in those hospitals. There's definitely, um, you know, chances, as in the whole of community, where there is some chance for transmission. Uh, but we haven't seen that be the case of hotel staff to date um, in any of the countries or any of the states or territories that have been operating uh, that program. And I think that also brings into the fact that a lot of the hotels have implemented really stringent safe guidelines for their staff about how to interact in these environments. Um, and that's right from the front of house to those that are cleaning the rooms, making sure they've got the correct PPE. But I think there was a fantastic quote by a New South Wales government minister and it said, this disease, it's not a long jumper, it's not a high jumper. And as long as you practice really good hygiene and really good safety measures, you're not going to get it. And I think that's a really important thing to recognise in this pandemic. That's actually quite true. But I mean, I would imagine there'd be a lot of learnings for the hotels because this is so unprecedented. And I've managed to a lot of lessons that come out of this. Absolutely. I think the, the lessons are going to be enhancing what some of those systems and processes already were. We already know that hotels were a safe place to stay. They have higher hygiene standards than those that are operating in the unregulated space. And we've already seen that from all the hotel groups around Australia. They've increased their cleaning standards. They've increased the number of times rooms are inspected. They've increased the ability of staff to service those rooms in terms of time limits for each space uh, and I think we're going to see that ongoing because what travellers are going to be looking for now is a safe, secure tourism experience and that's what the hotels will continue to build on. So how do you expect the hotel industry generally will be different as we emerge from this? I think what we're going to see is probably an investment in technology. I, I think we saw some really great moves out of the aviation sector uh, over the last uh, probably three to five years and probably longer than that in, in having a uh, a touchless environment. I mean, if you, if you jump on a Qantas or Virgin plane in Australia now, you can effectively get on and off the plane with your bags and not really interact with a single uh, person that belongs to the airline uh, or really the, the airport. I think we're going to probably start to see that moving forward in a lot of hotels. I think people are going to be much more comfortable with the idea of using their phones to access their room, uh, the ability to self-manage your accounts and, and interact on a lighter touch with a number of employees. So I'm expecting that technology investment to really drive uh, some increasing ease of access to hotel facilities. And I think consumers are really going to gel with that. I think we've seen that across all the tourism spectrum. Those who have invested in technology to make it easier for customers to interact. Um, I, I know for myself, when I go to a hotel, I'd love to be able to know what the room was, that I've got the key, and then it's available to me as soon as I land in the destination or when that's going to take place. And for a lot of hotels, as they're managing that investment uh, over a period of time, what we're going to see now is that imperative is going to be in place. People are going to demand that and expect that, and hotels are going to have to deliver it. Right. I mean, the other big concern for the hotel industry, I mean, Australian tourism industry is going to take a major hit, and there's all sorts of predictions that a whole lot of businesses are going to go bust as a result. Where do you see the hotel industry travelling on this? Well, we're, expect, like we're forecasting a recovery rate towards the end of the year, moving into March 2021, um, of around about 50% of what we were pre-COVID levels. Uh, if I look at the global aviation forecasting data, which really is the first evidence of movement uh, in the tourism industry, they're expecting a three-year recovery globally. Uh, so what we'd expect to see in the domestic industry uh, is that we can maybe move to a 50 to 60% rate by the end of 2021. If we're lucky, some areas will probably do better and be in the 70 to 80%, uh, and that will be in regional areas, uh, and that's where we'll be. But our cities are absolutely uh, bound by the you know, success of international tourism. So until those borders are reopened, our CBD hotels are going to have a harder operating environment than those in the regions. 
Right, okay. But the regional the regional hotels will pick up more. But do you see uh, some of the hotels could be put out of business by this? I think it's in, it, it is possible. I don't think any business is safe in this environment. We've already seen um, a number of owners of hotels already enter uh, liquidation or bankruptcy proceedings uh, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we, with hopefully the announcement of JobKeeper extension, uh, we're hoping that that will hold a lot of hotels together. But we've got, a, I think there's been about 400 hotels across Australia already closed their doors, according to our um, data company, STR. We're not expecting that to increase dramatically, but what we may see is new investment in hotels start to slow. We were coming into a record opening uh, couple of years with hotels, and that may start to slow, or the owners of those assets will start to look at whether hotels, those residential or commercial, will be the right place for them. Right. So do you see the business model for hotels changing as a result of this? I probably see, I don't see the overall business model um, changing uh, fundamentally because we've had you know, 15, 20 years of really unprecedented growth globally. What I do see is, but is the customer experience and the customer journey in those hotels changing. And what we may see is some of those niche hotels really start to find their mark in this environment. I think we're going to see that uh, across that mid-tier sector. I think it's going to, those that innovate and adapt bring in a whole bunch of value that is perceived by the customer are going to do very well during this time. So we could see some major changes for the better in the hotel industry? Yeah, I, I think so. For, for me, it's, the customer is going to be in an unprecedented position to request and demand different activities. Uh, we all know one of the greatest things about a hotel is making sure that you have a fantastic buffet, and those of us love a good buffet, that make sure you get your, your omelettes, your pastries, all the great things you want. But we're probably going to see some tweaks to that, what that looks like, time will tell. And as I said, I think we're going to see a change in the way that we engage with uh, the employees of those hotels as well uh, for a positive. As I said, I think a lot of hotels have to balance that investment in technology. Now it's going to be an absolute paramount moving forward. Well, Dean, it's been fascinating talking to you, and uh, we'll watch the hotel industry with great fascination. Thank you very much for your time. Great to be on with you. Cheers. And now let's talk RMIT Professor Sinclair Davidson. Sinclair, we had a economic statement from the government this week and it had a, a record deficit of $184.5 billion, uh, debt to exceed $850 billion, and unemployment to go up to 9.2%, possibly more. Uh, what's your assessment of it? The bad news is that I think the economic crisis is just starting. And the good news is that I think the government have responded probably reasonably appropriately and they're probably well-placed to be a lot better off than otherwise might have been the case. So those are horrific numbers. But nonetheless, the, the, the story is could have been worse. Um, which I think right now people don't necessarily want to hear. Uh, but yes, yeah, so if, if, if you look back to the MyEFO, which came out in December, so what, just seven months ago, in the MyEFO, the government was forecasting a cash uh, um, a surplus of $5 billion. And uh, yesterday, they, they, they forecast, this is for 1920, uh, they forecast a deficit of $85 billion. So we're actually looking here at a $90 billion turnaround in just six months, which kind of says to us the scale of the government's intervention. And this year, going forward, they're looking at a deficit of $184 billion dollars. Now, I kind of think that must be the biggest budget deficit outside of wartime uh, that Australia has ever seen. So uh, it 
these are big, big numbers, but bearing in mind things could always have been worse. And I think the, 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 the government is, is working quickly to do what it can, given uh, the, the, the information that they have available to them. It would suggest, though, that uh, there's not going to be any quick turnaround from There's not going to be any snapback on this. Look, I, I don't think there's going to be a snapback. Unfortunately, if, if, if you have a look at, at the government's economic statement from yesterday, they are actually forecasting a snapback. And if you have a look at, at, at some of their diagrams, um, I think particularly chart 2.1, um, it's almost like they, they're, they're suggesting the snapback is on already, which I, I, I don't believe to be true. Um, because quite honestly, you can't just switch an economy on and off. An economy is not an electrical appliance where you switch it off at the wall and it stops and you switch it on again at the wall and all of a sudden it's running just as well as it was before. And we, we, we like to have these machine analogies for the economy, but in actual fact, the economy is not a machine. The economy is more like an interlinked web of people and their expectations and their business relationships and their purchasing behavior and what have you. And that has been dramatically disrupted by all of this. So we, we, we have some people who are working as normal. Some people are actually working harder than what they were before. We have other people who are sitting at home. And so in actual fact, we've had a massive disruption to the economy and the snapback hypothesis so simply assumes that we're all going to wake up one morning, we're going to get out of our pajamas that we've been wearing for the last four or five months, uh, we're going to squeeze ourselves back into our, uh, our uh, uh, business clothes, because more or less all we've been doing is sort of eating and drinking, uh, we're going to give up our day drinking, and we're going to become just as productive as we were six months ago, we're going to literally just pick up where we were, and of course, we all know full well that you just simply cannot just pick up from where you were. Many, many people's suppliers have gone out of business. Many business relationships are broken. Many people have lost their jobs. So I actually think there's going to be a much slower recovery. Now, there's all these different shapes. So um, people talk about a, a, a V-shaped recovery or a U-shaped recovery or a W-shaped recovery. Heaven forbid we have an L-shaped recovery. But the, the, the bottom line is, is that the economic problems facing Australia now are that we have borrowed a lot of money and spent a lot of money already just keeping people at home. What we've got to do in future is uh, we've actually got to get people back to work. We've got to get the economy humming again. We have also got to pay back the debt that we've accumulated in the last six months, an astonishing amount of debt that government have had to borrow. And I'm, I'm normally very strong on debt and deficits, I don't blame the government at all for the amount of money they've had to borrow. You simply cannot send people home without money. And so what has happened is the government have had to borrow an astonishing amount of money just to make sure that people at home can put food on the table. Other countries in the world, people are experiencing food riots. Uh, we haven't had that just yet. I think the amount of money that's been borrowed has been important to maintain Australia's social fabric. And so I don't blame them. I don't judge them for having done what they've done. Uh, but I do think the economic crisis is still coming. We've still got to get people back to work. We've still got to get jobs going. We've got to pay off the debt. And we've also got to restore our prosperity to what it was in February of this year. Well, the issue, though, too, is, I mean, you've got the Reserve Bank saying, look, go ahead and add, add to the spending, increase the deficit, 
And you've got uh, corporate leaders are now saying, look, uh, just record deficits, move on, because there's no policy alternative. Yes, yes. Um, right now, there is no other alternative to more or less keep borrowing and keep spending. Unfortunately, a lot of people are sort of are, are rolling out their, their, their pet projects. So the argument is, you know, we, we should now spend more money on infrastructure projects and shovel-ready projects and all these ideas that we always have as if we were in a regular recession. This is not a regular recession. This is a very different thing that was ever happened ever before. Normally, what has happened, you know, when the economy goes into recession, there's all sorts of problems beforehand. The Australian economy was not obviously facing difficulty in January, February of this year. Uh, okay, we, you know, we, we, we had bushfires and what have you, but that, that is not an obvious structural problem with the economy. So there, there, there weren't structural problems with the economy in January, February. We've actually simply just had a, uh, um, the government do something completely different. It was actually try to shut down the economy and then to try and open it up again. Now, this was to maintain social distancing, which was a public health policy. So we've actually not had an economic dislocation per se. We've actually had another policy that's got economic costs. The amount of money we've paid for right now is to cover those costs. What going forward is to actually get the economy going again. We don't have a spending problem. Uh, we actually have a get things going problem. So the government, rather than just spend money willy-nilly, they should actually be focusing on job creation. Now, job creation does means that more or less monetary policy doesn't have much of a role here. If you were looking at the newspapers during the week, everybody was very excited about the Reserve Bank governor's speech um, earlier on in the week. Don't want to be horrible about the Reserve Bank governor, but right now he's almost more or less redundant uh, because there's no role for monetary policy right now. You can lower interest rates to zero. I mean, I think they're at 0.25 now or something ridiculous. They've been pushing on that piece of string for a decade. Nothing's happened. So the Reserve Bank governor has got an interesting opinion and what have you, but in terms of what the Reserve Bank does, there's not much to be done there. Similarly, fiscal policy in terms of building roads and dams and all these big infrastructure projects that the people always talk about, I wouldn't be doing that. Right now, they're giving money to people to spend because they're not earning anything. They should keep doing that. But what they need to do is actually make it easier to employ people. They make it easier to start up businesses. They may need to make it easier to invest. Unfortunately, if you look at the, at the, the, the update yesterday, the government are still forecasting declines in investment. Uh, the only increase in investment comes from the mining industry, where they are now replacing depreciated assets. Um, so Australia went into the crisis with a low investment problem. Uh, we've got to fix that. We went into the crisis with a low productivity problem. We've got to fix that. And there's a great article today by uh, the man from Deloitte's in the financial, uh, Chris Richardson in the Financial yes. Review, more or less saying, we've got to increase the speed limit at which the economy can grow. We are not going to solve our debt and deficit problem by austerity. We are not going to solve our debt and deficit problem by increasing taxes. The only way that we can do it right now is by growing the economy. We have to grow the economy by creating uh, private sector employment opportunities. That's the way going forward because the public sector have lost no jobs. The private sector has lost the jobs. We've got to recreate those jobs in the private sector 
using private expectations and what have you. Um, so this is not a build more roads solution. This is actually entrepreneurs have got to be able to go and, and start new businesses, re-employ people. In effect, what you're saying is what we need is some microeconomic reform. Yes, yes, yes. The, the, the normal macroeconomic tools that we deploy for getting out of recessions are not appropriate right here. We actually need lots of micro-reform. And unfortunately, too many people start with micro-reform thinking this is all about um, IR. I mean, yes, there are, uh, there are always IR reform issues to be thought about, but I would be looking at business regulation. I would be looking at red tape. I would be looking at beige tape. I'd be looking at green tape. Making it easier to start businesses and not necessarily making it easier to pay your employees less. Um, and that's what people always think of microeconomic reform is, oh, you know, we, we're going to screw the workers. This is not a time for this. This is actually a time to enhance the opportunities to create jobs throughout the Australian economy. Um, and that should be the focus here. Right. Okay. So uh, we, what you're saying is we need a period of microeconomic reform that we haven't seen since, what, the 80s? The 80s, definitely. But, but to be fair to the government, we, some of that microeconomic reform is occurring already. So, for example, governments very quickly suspended payroll tax. Yes. Now, for years and years and years, people have been saying payroll tax is a tax on jobs, and governments have been saying, oh, we don't know, we're not sure, maybe not. Almost straight away, payroll tax was suspended. So that should be made permanent. Um, because it just says the government knew all along that it was a problem, but it was, a, it was something we could afford. Mm. Um, a lot of things like payroll tax, like uh, green tape, like beige tape, are things we can't really afford anymore. You know, we were a lot richer in February. But we're actually a lot poorer now. It, it's, it's, not, it's not obvious that we were poor, but we're actually a lot poorer now than what we were just six months ago. And we can't afford the regulatory state that we had six months ago. Um, and, and, and as I said, to be fair to government, they have reacted very quickly on obvious things. Uh, but there's obviously a lot more work to be done. Well, Sinclair, it'll be fascinating to watch. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, fear, US-China tensions and cheap money have lifted the gold price to an all-time high. Gold has raced to a record high as the US's deepening COVID-19 crisis sent the US dollar tumbling further and encouraged nervy investors to choose the precious metal as a place to park their cash. The price of the metal, used by investors as a store of value in times of stress, climbed as much as 2.4% to a record $1,944.73 a troy ounce, blasting past its previous nominal high at $1,921, set in September 2011. Gold has rallied by more than a quarter this year, making it one of the best-performing mainstream assets, as investors brace for the economic fallout of COVID-19 and seek to minimise the effects of a sweeping central bank interventions on their portfolios. Investors think the fundamentals are in place for gold to challenge US $2,000 an ounce later this year. Throwing mounting geopolitical tensions between the US and China, the Vox popular risk of mounting social disorder playing out in the US and Europe, and the nosedive in the value of the world's reserve currency in gold looks like a no-brainer. ASX-listed gold miners have been among the best beneficiaries of the rally, which translates the gold price to $2,707 an ounce in Australian dollar terms. And second quarter CPI fell 1.9% quarter-on-quarter. Economists have been expecting a 2% quarter-on-quarter fall. Year-on-year, CPI fell 0.3%. Economists had been expecting a 0.5% drop. And Melbourne businesses are bracing for an extension to the city's six-week lockdown and a deeper economic slump 
as COVID-19 cases across the state continue to spike to record levels. Prominent Melbourne businessman Graham, Graham Samuel, who gave a series of speeches two months ago in which he said the authorities handled the pandemic reasonably well and predictions of an 8% employment rate, had merit. On Monday, he said he'd now revise his view. Bad news for landlords. The latest CoreLogic data shows rent values declined nationally 0.3% in the month of June and 0.5% over the quarter. This was the largest quarterly fall in rent since September 2018, and further falls are expected in the coming months. Capital city rents have been more immediately impacted by the negative economic shock resulting from COVID-19. Capital city rents fell 0.7% in the June quarter, compared with a 0.2% rise in rents across regional Australia. And the 2020 COVID depression continues. ANZ Roy Morgan Australian Consumer Confidence fell for the fifth week straight. Sentiment is down 10% from its end of May high. Case numbers in Victoria and New South Wales seem to be sapping confidence, as is September's reductions in JobKeeper and JobSeeker. And Australia is in danger of marking its first three quarters of economic contraction since the 1982 recession, as Victoria's virus lockdown threatens to last beyond its six-week schedule, stalling the national jobs and spending recovery despite a surge in government stimulus payments. In the week to July 11th, 1.4% of Victorian jobs were cut, according to tax office payroll figures released on Tuesday, driving a 0.6% national fall and reversing some of the gains from May to the end of June as the economy started to reopen. If translated into the separate Australian Bureau of Statistics Labor Force survey, the payroll numbers indicate that 60,000 or so of the national 210,000 jobs recovered in June are now being lost again. On the same basis, Victoria has now lost about 252,000 jobs since March. With another 380 virus COVID-19 cases in Victoria on Tuesday, economists expect the chances of an easing in restrictions after the original six-week time frame have been blown, and that could send the September quarter economic growth number into negative territory. And Victoria's and New South Wales' poor responses to the coronavirus health crisis has paved the way for smaller states to turbocharge their economic growth. Commonwealth Bank's latest quarterly State of the States report reveals Victoria has lost the title of best-performing state economy for the first time in two years. That honour has instead been claimed by Tasmania, which tied for first place with Victoria in the last report. It's the first time since September 2009 that the island state has taken top spot on its own. Tasmania ranked first in four of the eight economic measures used by the bank on a relative basis. Those measures were unemployment, population growth, retail trade and business investment relative to the state's decade average. And the cost of paid pandemic leave for the aged care sector could escalate quickly due to the low bar for workers to self-isolate, centres have warned. Residential aged care centres and nursing agencies demanded the Morrison government increase its funding for the sector to pay for the two-week entitlement improved by the Workplace Tribunal this week and expected to come into effect on Wednesday. The employers argued the paid leave, accessible any time a worker has to self-isolate, is unviable and risks the supply of critical staff. And Scott Morrison has broadened the membership of the business advisory body assisting the government with COVID-19 recovery, but has made it clear the group will be advising the Cabinet, which means much of their input will remain confidential. The Prime Minister said the COVID-19 Commission, which he established at the beginning of the pandemic to help keep things moving in the economy when supply chains were severely disrupted, was set to morph into an advisory board that could work inside the government. It will be reconfigured to advise the government on its jobmaker agenda for the post-pandemic recovery, with former top unionist Paul Howes to join the team of commissioners. The COVID-19 commission was set up in the early outbreak, led by former Fortescue Medals Chief Executive Nev Power, to coordinate with business to deal with logistic issues. It will now advise the Prime Minister on a range of reforms, including on industrial relations, federation reform and infrastructure. 
And the Productivity Commission has warned younger people that they face the fight of their lives to find their dream job and pay because of the long-term consequences of the virus-induced recession. The Commission's paper, titled Climbing the Jobs Ladder, Slower, Young People in a Weak Labour Market, investigated the scarring in the job market in the 10 years after the global financial crisis. It showed that from 2008 to 2018, young people had more difficulty getting jobs in the occupations they aspired to, and if they started in a less attractive occupation, it was harder for them than before 2008 to climb the occupation ladder. The Productivity Commission spells out how young people who take on an occupation lower on the jobs ladder due to the economic downturn will likely earn lower salaries for an extended period. The report showed the 2008 global financial crisis caused a weak labour market for a decade and warns we may be in for a similar or worse time frame. In June, the jobless rate for 20 to 24-year-olds was 13.9%. The Productivity Commission report found that by mid-April, job losses for people under 20 was around 23%, but by the end of June, this had reduced to around 5%. The study used the household income and labour dynamics in Australia data set to show that young people found work in lower scored occupations as based on the alignment between a person's education with their earning potential. The likelihood of transitioning to better outcomes was also low and worsened slightly over time, suggesting that poor initial outcomes can have long-term effects on one's occupation. Those aged 20 to 34 experienced nearly zero growth in real wage rates from 2008 to 2018, and workers aged 15 to 24 experienced a large decline in full-time work and an increase in part-time work. In his speech at the National Press Club last Friday, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg warned there could be complications for young people trying to get jobs and or pay rises. And policies to create jobs will take priority over calls for faster tax cuts in the next phase of the Morrison government's economic stimulus, amid a political fight over the cost of bringing forward $48 billion in personal tax relief. Prime Minister Scott Morrison declared nothing else mattered to his policy plan as much as measures to create new jobs or keep people in work, sending a warning signal to Liberals who want faster tax cuts. The government has legislated personal tax cuts in three stages, with the second stage starting in 2022 and the third in 2024, leading some government MPs to call for a change to the timetable to give the economy a boost. A worker with a taxable income of $80,000 would receive a $1,080 tax cut for the second stage, while a worker on $200,000 would receive a $2,565 tax cut. The Greens and social services groups have attacked the idea of bringing forward the personal income tax cuts on the grounds this would help those lucky enough to have jobs and would not create new and if you're a bank shareholder don't expect a dividend the prudential regulator has instructed banks to reduce payout ratios to below 50 percent for the rest of the calendar year in a letter to banks australian prudential regulation authority chairman wayne burrs tells the banks to moderate payments to shareholders in light of the many demands the virus crisis is placing on bank capital the edict will have an immediate impact on the hip pockets of millions of shareholders who buy the banks for dividends, with most Australian banks regularly paying out between 80% and 95% of their annual profits annually. And Australia ranks last in manufacturing self-sufficiency among the world's developed economies, with a new report showing the nation uses $565 billion worth of manufacturing output annually, but produces only $380 billion. As a COVID-19 pandemic highlights problems with global supply chains and gaps in Australia's manufacturing capability, the report released by the Australian Centre for Future Work shows renewal of the sector could generate as much as $180 billion in new sales, $50 billion in additional GDP and more than 400,000 jobs. It blames failures of trade and industrial policy for undermining domestic manufacturers' success in doing business with key global markets, producing dangerously lopsided patterns in overseas trade. Manufacturing jobs make up about 6.9% of Australia's workforce, but more than 26.4% of all research and development spending. 
total employment in the sector has dropped by 9.6% since 2010, the report shows. And Australia's horror summer of bushfires have put climate change at the forefront of risk factors for Australian mining companies, according to accounting and consulting firm KPMG. In the firm's 2021 Australian Mining Out Risk Outlook, KPMG mining risk partner Karen Sugars said that bushfires, which swept across both sides of the country over summer, pushed business risks associated with climate change to the top of the thinking of Australian mining executives taking part in its annual survey. The primary research for the KPMG study was conducted in January, as the impacts of the coronavirus pandemic were just beginning to emerge. But Ms Sugars said that while subsequent contact with senior mining executives had highlighted the impacts of the pandemic, the Australian sector had been well prepared to cope with its threat from a health and safety perspective, but was now looking more closely at the wider ramifications of similar threats. And Saputo will drop the coon name from its popular cheese products in Australia, the latest company to change branding amid a corporate reckoning on systemic racism. The Canadian food giant is working to develop a new brand name that will honour the brand affinity felt by our valued customers while aligning with current attitudes and perspectives, it said in a statement posted online. The company says its cheese brand was named after founder Edward William Kuhn, but the word Kuhn is more popularly recognised as a racist term with its roots in American slavery, an abbreviation of the word raccoon used to caricature some black people, according to the Jim Crow Museum of Racist Memorabilia at Ferris State University in Michigan. Saputo's move follows mounting pressure on corporations to remove racist branding as protests flared in the US and elsewhere against George Floyd's death at the hands of police. A slew of companies and groups have changed their problematic brand names, including the Washington NFL team, which which dropped Redskins, and country music group Lady Antebellum, which changed its name to Lady A. This month, Unilever removed the word fair from the name of skin whitening cream it sold in India for decades. PepsiCo's Aunt Jemina pancake mix, Colgate Palmolive's Dali toothpaste, and Mars Uncle Ben's nice brand have all pledged to ditch the racist tropes in their branding. And Metcash has accelerated the consolidation of the Australian tool and hardware industry with the acquisition of a 70% stake in Total Tools for $57 million. Total Tools is a franchisor to the largest tool retail network in Australia with 81 bannered stores which generated sales of $555 million in the 12 months to December 2019. Metcash's strategy is to have a mix of independently owned and joint venture retail stores. It can move to 100% ownership within the next four years. Metcash will provide a $35 million debt facility to Total Tools to support its growth plans. Metcash owns a Mitre 10 and Home Timber and Hardware brands. The deal is subject to approval by the Australian Competition Consumer Commission. The deal comes after Bunnings received approval from the competition watchdog for its acquisition of Adelaide Tools, a specialist tool and power equipment provider. And more than 800 passengers have joined a class action against the operators of the Ruby Princess over its handling of the coronavirus outbreak. The cruise ship, docked in Sydney in March, allowed 2,647 passengers to disembark, despite some showing flu-like symptoms. The ship came to be linked to hundreds of COVID-19 cases and more than 20 deaths. Shine lawyers announced a class action on Friday, alleging the company failed in their duty of care, while a New South Wales Special Commission of Inquiry is also underway. An infant formula group, Bubs Australia is expanding into the vitamin sector with a new range of children's products called Vitabubs and has signed up international model Jennifer Hawkins as the front person for the brand which will be sold in pharmacy giant Chemist Warehouse from October. 
but the core bumps range of goat's milk infant formula products has experienced a slowdown in Australia in the June quarter, with revenues falling by 15% as the Diageo trade in China was disrupted by heavy cutbacks in flights to China and logistics problems. Bubs Chief Executive Christy Carr said Bubs had been working on its expansion in the vitamin sector for 12 months and was eyeing the rising number of children taking vitamins. She said Jennifer Hawkins, a former Miss Universe and television personality who had an eight-month-old baby herself, was the ideal person to be the ambassador to the Vitabubs brand. Ms Carr said Ms Hawkins had 1.8 million followers on social media and would be paid an undisclosed fee, which she could choose to take in cash or shares under the three-year deal. And the managing director of Australia's oldest and largest investment company has described the impact of the coronavirus as worse than the global financial crisis after reporting a 41% decline in profit and being forced to draw on reserve to make up the final dividend. Australian Foundation Investment Company's Managing Director Mark Freeman said the impact of the virus crisis on everything from everyday routines to global economies felt more challenging than the GFC, where the financial system was just a few wrong moves from a catastrophe. This feels more broad-based. It's global and affecting the economy in a broader way. There are not too many industries that have been spared, Mr Freeman said. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Lyndall Spooner, the founder and director of consultancy and advisory firm Fifth Dimension. She'll be talking about how business leaders now need to adopt a wartime mindset. And I'll be talking to IFM Investors Chief Economist Alex Joyner about the government's response to the pandemic-induced recession. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBowDoubleZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.